The proposed high-speed rail line between Vancouver and Seattle and Portland uh, linking the Pacific Northwest well, got a bit of a boost this past week as business leaders and government officials and other experts all met in Seattle to talk about that line. It was a three-day Cascadia Rail Summit. It all started on Wednesday at Microsoft's headquarters in Redmond, Washington. More than a dozen speakers were invited to, to be there and to talk about the plans and how it would positively impact the Pacific Northwest region. Now, there is some... I suppose, skepticism about this when it comes to spending and some uh, votes that have been taken in Washington state. But there are still many people who are positive about this and saying it is a good idea and it's something that should be looked at seriously. Uh, So yesterday I spoke with Anthony Pearl, who is a professor of urban studies at Simon Fraser University. And uh, we talked about what this would actually do as far as work opportunities in BC and in the entire region linking uh, the region. Uh, here is part of our conversation, and I started by saying thank you to Anthony for being with us. Pleasure. Uh, we've talked a lot about this idea of this high-speed rail uh, linking uh, Washington, Vancouver, uh, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, there's a big summit uh, taking place, or uh, just uh, taken place. What are your thoughts on, on how feasible this idea is? Well, uh, we've seen countries uh, from Japan uh, which was the first, to uh, Uzbekistan, which is one of the more recent uh, developing nations that have built, operated, and uh, succeeded with putting in this type of technology. It's over 50 years old, so it's really not um, that hard to do. Uh, funding seems to be one of the big obstacles on this, and I guess with a recent vote in Washington State about capping transit funding, is that, do you think, one of the biggest hurdles? Well, it's a question of priorities. Uh, People uh, like to uh, buy now and pay later. And so uh, the chances uh, are that this type of infrastructure will need to be partnered uh, to develop uh, with private uh, firms. Um, I don't think it was a coincidence that this uh, summit was held at the Microsoft campus in Redmond, Washington. It was my first visit there. They certainly need uh, all the help they can get for uh, better, more sustainable transportation, and they realize that. So um, there's a lot of money out there, uh, just like we uh, have tapped in other big infrastructure uh, projects in B.C. I'm not too worried about uh, this being out of reach uh, financially. Again, if countries like Morocco and Uzbekistan can afford uh, high-speed trains, I think we can here in Canada. And what about the idea that it does cross the border? Uh, You mentioned priorities, and that seems to be something that comes up uh, during this conversation as well, uh, saying that we should be prioritizing transit on this side of the border rather than than going into the States. Um, It's uh, like uh, walking and chewing gum. You can do both at the same time. They're both sustainable modes of transportation, and they both belong uh, in our future. And I don't see why we have to choose between them. Um, I also would point out that in all the places that have built uh, high-speed rail, public transit has grown and flourished. Uh, They naturally complement each other. Now, maybe we should be asking ourselves whether we need to expand the size of the uh, replacement tunnel for the current Massey Tunnel uh, out there, because if we have this high-speed link to um, Cascadia, maybe uh, we won't be having as many vehicles driving up and down uh, that route. I'm uh, showing how I suppose uh, they're they're all interconnected. Although we tend to to focus on 
the high speed train or, or the, the pitch for that is often tech workers and people working in the tech industry. Is, is that fair to say that that's kind of one of the driving forces? Well, it's certainly a motivation for the tech industry. Uh, they want uh, more productivity. You know, Microsoft has 60,000 people working in uh, Redmond. In no one building that I could see there was higher than four stories. They have over 100 different buildings spread out over uh, miles or kilometers of distance and little shuttle buses running around between them. It can take people as long to get from one Microsoft building on their campus to another as it'll take them to get up to Vancouver uh, in the future. So I think they see the benefits of more pr productivity from this mode of transportation. I'd say from our point of view in British Columbia, if we want to really get uh, the economic benefits of this uh, Cascadia knowledge uh, economy in the future, the better connected we are to it, the more we will uh, gain, uh, the more opportunities there will be. People should really think, you know, where are their children and grandchildren going to have their economic uh, futures? Will it be digging holes in the ground or cutting down trees in 50 years from now? I think there's going to be less of those opportunities than there are in the knowledge economy. And I think that this infrastructure opens those doors wider for British Columbians. Uh, what about the issue of the border, though, as far as it's not easy? I guess it depends what sector you're in. It's not easy to just to show up in the United States as a Canadian and start working. Uh, don't we have to address that as well as far as if we're talking about work opportunities? Absolutely. I don't think uh, Canadians will show up in the U.S. Uh, to uh, live and work. I think that they will work here and go to the U.S. or bring people from the U.S. here for meetings for a day. When you have an hour's train ride between here and uh, Seattle or Redmond, uh, they could have a branch that goes uh, to the Microsoft campus. They could easily afford to pay for that. Um, then that's less time than some people spend commuting from the valley into downtown Vancouver or uh, from West Seattle over to Redmond. It takes longer than an hour to do that currently. So all of a sudden, meetings and teamwork uh, between Canadian offices and Canadian um, uh, hubs or nodes uh, in uh, knowledge networks become much easier. I think that having this uh, train link here will create a, a real demand to locate the jobs in Canada, not to have Canadians go down to the U.S. to work, but it's a lot easier to bring talent from all over the world into Canada these days, unfortunately, than it is in the U.S. And I say unfortunately because I think that they're nationalist uh, immigration policies are going to hurt them over time, but it actually increases the value of this link. Uh, people and organizations like Microsoft, Amazon, and others will locate more jobs here and then connect up uh, the uh, people through the uh, high-speed link when they do need to meet and uh, interact with teams south of the border. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned the Valley, uh, which is interesting, too, and I think you, you kind of touched on this in that we can do both, uh, because that is an interesting comparison in that it does would take longer to commute, say, or to drive from Vancouver to Abbotsford or Chilliwack, longer than a one-hour one high-speed train. But does that show that we do need to be focusing on that, too? Because there's no reason that it, would, that it has to take that long if we invested or if we focused on, on moving people more efficiently in Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley. That's right. Uh, uh, Any time we uh, think about our future, we should be looking at uh, the more efficient and effective ways of connecting places up. And uh, rail does that very well in growing urban areas. Uh, so uh, 
there's room for that and there's synergies if we build a link it's not going we're not going to be running a bullet train down the uh, beach at white rock uh, it's not going to go along the coast so it will probably already go east for a while before it turns across uh, into uh, the u.s and that could uh, right of way could be shared with future services that go further east uh, and connect in there. Railway networks, just like roadway networks, work better when you have more um, branches and interconnections that share a common trunk. So uh, there's definitely an advantage or an opportunity for the valley if we do this right. So where do you see it going from here? Uh, like you said, the three-day conference, no no coincidence that it was held at the Microsoft complex. Where do you th- realistically see this going from here? I think that, uh, as you pointed out, there's currently some uh, debate, as there always is in the state of Washington, um, about uh, their Uh, transportation and fiscal uh, future. Washington, like B.C., has uh, a very um, diverse population. The uh, vote that they took about uh, fees and uh, registration fees on motor vehicles to help pay for transportation was uh, very divisive. Uh, The uh, eastern parts of the state voted against it, and the Puget Sound region of of Seattle voted for it. So they're going to have to sort out that local uh, or statewide political conflict. But I think that Washington State holds the key to this. They're at the center of this corridor, if we think that it runs all the way from Oregon up to B.C. You can't uh, build something without having the the center uh, on board. And uh, I expect that the uh, governor there, who is uh, very um, aware of uh, economic and environmental uh, uh, risks and opportunities, is going to champion this. And sooner or later, the uh, phone will ring on the B.C. Premier's end, and uh, the uh, voice at the other end will say, we're ready to go now. Are you? And so that's what I think uh, uh, we need to be working on, is not to be surprised uh, when the uh, call comes. We should have our own piece of the plan together. We may not have the financing in place uh, right away, but uh, when Washington State does, that's when uh, the... um, the rest of the ducks will need to be lined up. All right. Well, it is an interesting one uh, to watch how it's playing out now and, and, and shaping for the future. Anthony Pearl, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Bye-bye. Time to talk a little bit about uh, mental health first aid. And we know about first aid in the more traditional sense, but uh, mental health first aid is something that's getting a bit more attention. And we've got a couple of guests joining us now to talk more about that. Jim Billinger is a retired captain who is on the line with us. And Tracy Cromwell, Executive Director of the Mainland BC Military Family Resource Centre. Thanks to both of you for being with us this morning. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Jim, I want to start with you, if I can. Uh, Talk a little bit uh, about what this is. What exactly is mental health first aid? Um, Excuse me. I'm actually a a, a student of uh, the course. So I've graduated from the course. And um, it's really just in it to give confidence to people, um, provide immediate support and guidance in a safe environment really is uh, is one of the first things that you learn. Um, it's a, it's a course that provides skills that, uh, and confidence for people to, um, uh, assess people, uh, but not, not to, uh, diagnose people, just reassure them that, uh, that, uh, help is available and, and also to open a conversation or to listen. I mean, listening is really important when it comes to mental health. 
in all walks of life. And in this particular case, it concentrates in the veteran community. And it does seem like uh, something that, uh, like physical, like first aid that we think of. If you were to ask somebody, I think, about first aid, you would think about a cut or an, a physical injury. Uh, but the the idea of treating somebody who is experiencing a mental health crisis or a mental health issue, uh, very different. But, but I would imagine some of the same fundamentals. Uh, that's absolutely right, because... Um, yeah, no one is born, I think, with, with natural first aid skills. You, you have to learn from professionals. And whether it's first aid practical, um, you know, someone has broken, broken something or they're bleeding or they're not breathing. Uh, we heard on the radio about the Heimlich maneuver being used on, on someone who was choking. So that's the first aid that people are, are familiar with. But uh, mental, health, mental health first aid uh, helps to reduce uh, the stigma and the isolation that some people feel when they don't feel that they can uh, discuss these things. It helps us to uh, recognize that someone might be going through mental health difficulties in all its forms and giving confidence to, you know, open a conversation in a safe environment. So, you know, first aid is not all about practical hands-on. It's, um, it's really uh, in all its forms. And this, this one in particular is very important. And Tracy, I'll bring you in uh, now as well, uh, again, with the uh, Mainland BC Military Family Resource Centre. How much of a need is there, uh, do you see, for this type of mental health first aid? I think it's, it's definitely out there, and it's something that it's really important that has been recognized. Our original mandate at the Military Family Resource Centre was initially to work with the families of currently serving military members. Uh, It hasn't been that long, just since April of 2018, that we have been able to secure funding, increase our mandate to have the opportunity to expand our services and our resources to veteran families. So the mental health first aid is one part of our veteran family program. So um, as you said, there's, there's a bit of a, or Jim mentioned it, a bit of a stigma around mental health first aid. And a lot of times where we see this is in the veteran population, sometimes as they're transitioning out of their careers. So it's been a career where they have been in go mode, they have been ready to go, and now they're about to leave a career that they've loved, where they have literally put their lives on the line and the lives, and had others put their lives on the line on behalf of them. And so there can be a period of an adjustment in that. And what this course really does very well is it recognizes the impact that that has on the families and the people who support those, those veterans. So whether that family is composed of the spouse, uh, whether it's the children. In the case of our younger veterans, it's actually their parents oftentimes that are taking these courses. And one thing I also want to mention, too, this course is uh, we partner with Veterans Affairs Canada, and their mandate is to serve uh, military as well as RCMP. So we're also looking at inviting families of uh, uh, RCMP veteran families into these courses too. So it's all about the families and all about others like Jim and his position with commissioners that support veterans too. So it's a pretty broad-based course, not so much for treatment, but definitely in helping, as Jim said, increase the confidence of those who support the veteran communities. And and Jim, I'll bring you back in. Do you find, are, are people becoming more open to it or open to the idea? Like Tracy said, there's a bit of a, a stigma in that it's one thing to get a broken leg looked at and checked. It's quite another to admit that there's a mental health issue and to get that checked. There, there shouldn't be, but it does seem like there's a difference there. 
Um, well, there certainly is. And I think uh, it, it, we need to be clear that we're not forcing people to admit anything, and, uh, and, and nor should we. Uh, families are very, very close to their loved ones, and they're the first support network that veterans often has, as, as Tracy has described. Um, I work in an organization that employs veterans, some older and, and still some younger. And um, it doesn't really matter um, whether the, the, uh, the, the anxiety or, or whatever it might be is from decades ago or from quite recently. Uh, we're here to support. We're here to, to recognize. We're here to reduce the stigma and, and allow a safe place to chat. And um, I reassure people that uh, pe- that, that uh, help is available, and um, just just make sure the person knows that they are supported. And uh, whilst I can't speak to the prevalence, I mean my job in particular uh, uh, uses the skills that I've gained from this course, whereas in my uh, army service it was using skills that I thought were appropriate without actually any training. So this is great. I've I've really benefited from this course. All right. And Tracy, can anybody take the course? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a bit of a priority for families of medically released veterans, but I would encourage anyone to get in touch with us, uh, veterans at bcmfrc.com. The next course we have coming up is running November 21st and 22nd in North Vancouver. So it's close to a lot of people, and we would be very pleased to have them get in touch with us. And to we do still have places available in that particular course. And, yeah, we encourage anybody to get in touch with us. And do, do people have to, to pay for the course? So I know you mentioned that you'd partnered with Veterans Canada as well. Yeah, that's one of the amazing things about the course. It is actually offered for free. So, And it's a fairly small group that we can take. It's 25 at a time because, uh, you know, there are hands-on well, hands-on exercises in terms of, like, participation that way, not hands-on in terms of first aid treatment, but, you know, small group work, different things like that. So it's a fairly small, intimate group where we work, and it is a full two-day course in order to get the certification for it. All right. And just uh, before I let you go, Jim, uh, can you talk a little bit as well just on the benefits of this in that uh, people might be hearing about this for the first time, but, but what are some of the benefits that you've seen? Um, well, I can tell you from a personal point of view, it's really given me the confidence to uh, go about and and engage with our commissioners, uh, whether they're veterans or not. We're talking about uh, real people here who have got families, who have got anxieties, who have got uh, stresses and strains, and uh, offer that kind of support. Um, but the benefits are going to be that uh, people who attend are going to get the, the skills and the confidence uh, to to recognize some things and, and the confidence to open conversations and really, really listen to what's being said and allow people who might be suffering to, um, you know, use the time that they feel uh, that they need to express themselves, non, non-judgmental, and, um, and reassure them that help is available. We're, we're not the diagnosers, uh, we could, but we can certainly, um, you know, put them in the right direction as far as help. All right. And, and Tracy, I'll get you to put out uh, that uh, the website or the email just one more time in case people are interested and want to get more information. Absolutely. So it's veterans at bcmfrc.com. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you both so much uh, for joining us. Very timely uh, and very important uh, information to get out there. Uh, my uh, thanks, uh, appreciation to both of you for being here. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you.
pleasure. Thank you. Well, during the summer, we spent some time talking about fisheries in BC, fisheries management. Uh, we'd been talking to a lot of anglers about their concerns uh, in being uh, what they said they felt in many cases they were being made the scapegoat for many of the decisions being made on the Fraser River. Well, Bob Hooten joins me now. He is also a recreational fisherman who has written a lengthy piece uh, on, uh, it's a, a piece on a blog called Steelhead Voices on a website uh, called Steelhead Voices. And he joins me now to talk a bit more about that. Bob Hooten, thanks so much for being with us. Well, no problem. Glad uh, to be here. What are some of your concerns uh, now that we're into November, the, the, the summer fishing season is, is behind us. Uh, what are some of your concerns looking back at how certain fisheries were managed? Well, my my particular interest here is uh, the problems of Steelhead Resource. And at this point in time, the it's the iconic interior Fraser Steelhead, most notably represented by the Thompson River stock that uh, are top of mind because uh, they're accorded endangered status by uh, the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada. And yet uh, our Department of Fisheries Ocean and Oceans that's largely responsible for managing those fish once they uh, are approaching the, the Fraser River or in its tidal reaches, uh, they're doing an abysmal job of protecting a resource that's on the brink of extirpation. What do you think should be done? Well, you know, the indiscriminate harvesting technology that we apply in our rivers, in only, in other words, gill nets, just has to change. There's just no question about that in, in any forward-thinking person's mind. I don't, I don't believe you can't you can't run gill nets uh, anywhere and expect them to understand the difference between, say, a chum salmon and a steelhead or a coho and a chum salmon or it's the classic mixed stock dilemma where you've got non-target species subjected to the same fishing technology, if you want to call it that, however primitive it might be, but the same harvesting technology that the target stocks are. And it's very much at the expense of the non-target stocks like steelhead. So until you get those gillnets out of the water, it's absolutely absurd to be talking about conservation. Right, but aren't they done in a way that the gillnets are a certain a certain size and a certain uh, a certain type that when they are fishing uh, to to reduce the amount of, of bycatch or to reduce the amount of, of perhaps steelhead or other species that they're not targeting? No, this is largely the mischief that's uh, you know promulgated by DFO and their fisheries announcements and so on, particularly those in reference to the First Nations fishery. Yes, you can make a gillnet somewhat selective if you want to make the mesh size 12 inches, you know, but the, the fact remains that the, the mesh sizes that are commonly employed are going to catch everything, you know, because there's just not that much of a separation in size between the target and the non-target stocks. So, you know, you're typically these nets are in, the, you know, the five, five and a half, five and seven eighths mesh size uh, range, and, and uh, they're going to screen everything with fins out of the water column as long as they're deployed. So, and, and you'll see notices, you know, that suggest that, uh, oh, the steelhead or whenever encounter are supposed to re- be released, quote, safely and unharmed. Well, I defy DFO to demonstrate that a, uh, a set net in the Fraser River that's there for many hours and in many cases overnight, for example, that somebody's going to go and check that net at, uh, you know, at dawn's early light or 
after some number of hours in the water, and they're going to safely release unharmed a non-target fish like a steelhead. They're dead. A gillnet, there's there's outstanding information from places, for example, like the DFO-operated test fishery on the lower Skeena River for decades, where the sample size is, is thousands of steelhead. 50% of them, the long-term average, 50% of those fish are dead on arrival. So that means that a one-hour set of a gillnet that's uh, designed to fish for the, all the same species and, and size ranges that are available in the Fraser River, that set net for one hour operated by experts in, in fishing, fish handling and, and uh, gillnetting procedures and all that, it's still 50% dead on arrival. The other 50%, you're never really sure. Some of them are released injured. They swim away. Are they going to contribute to a spawning population? We'll never know. What about all the fish that fall out of gill nets before they actually come over the rollers into a boat? Does anybody ever count them? What about the fact that all these studies about the mortality rates, you know, oh, they're very low and all that sort of thing. Well, they're predicated on one net. What happens when you have a gauntlet of nets from Tawasin to Sawmill Creek, you know, 200 kilometers upstream? What's the likelihood that a steelhead or a non-target species is going to encounter only one net? There's multiple nets all through that area. One catches it and releases it. The next one's going to do the same thing. It's a cumulative and, and an accelerated sort of so do you mortality think, rate involved in all this kind of stuff. Is it's the issue, never acknowledged. Is the issue that First Nations are allowed to fish under, under a bit of a different set of rules than other commercial fishermen and that that continues? Absolutely. You know, we have to call a spade a spade here. The commercial fishery, the gillnet fishery in the, in the lower Fraser River has been virtually non-existent the last few years. So really, you know, anybody wants to put the crosshairs on, on a commercial fishermen, wrong target. You've got to look to, to the First Nations community and say, they have to step up to the plate here and, and uh, demonstrate that they are the stewards that they claim to be and that they are responsible conservationists. It's not happening. And do you think DFO has a larger role in, in stepping in and dealing with this? Absolutely, they do. It's DFO that's authorizing these fisheries under what they call communal licenses. And those licenses are negotiated in confidence, in private, behind closed doors. I've asked the regional director general, Rebecca Reed, for to provide a copy of one of those licenses. So those of us in the great unwashed public out here might have a better understanding of, you know, what are the what are the ground rules around a communal license? You know, how does that function? Nope. Confidential, they will not pass along a communal license. And yet every single First Nation, and there's at least a couple of dozen of them between Tawasin and Yale, every one of them has privately negotiated communal licenses with DFO. And you mentioned you've written to DFO. So have you heard back at all from DFO about your concerns? I started out by writing uh, the, the Director General, Rebecca Reed. I got a response from her delegate uh, 11 days later. And, uh, you know, I referred to it as denial, deflection, that sort of thing. You know, they never answer the questions that you put to them directly. And, uh, you know, it's very, very frustrating. To, it, they just, it's a very non responsive organization. 
It, it, they're just not doing the job that the public expects of, of them as public servants. Uh, we only have about 30 seconds. Uh, going in then, moving forward uh, before the next uh, fishing season, what are you hoping for or what will you continue to do? I, quite frankly, I think there's a really simple solution here. You don't need gillnets in the main stem Fraser River in the migration corridor for all these non-target stocks and species. You can put them in the terminal areas like the stave, like the Weaver Creek and Chehalis, Lower Harrison at the point of origin of all these chum stocks that are that are causing the problem for the non-target stocks that are mixed in with them. Those, all these surplus chum could very easily be harvested outside the problem areas in the main Fraser. The burden of responsibility needs to be put on the First Nations themselves to come to some agreement among themselves over how those fish are going to be shared or the proceeds from harvesting those fish are going to be shared between multiple First Nations. All right. That's my overly simplistic solution. <laughs> All right, Bob, we are out of time, but thank you so much. That is Bob Hooten. He's a retired, or sorry, a, re- a recreational uh, fisherman and uh, has written that piece in Steelhead Voices. Well, as you know, if you've been listening to the news, the transit strike in Metro Vancouver is now in its second week, and it's anticipated we could see an escalation in job action this coming week, Tuesday, Wednesday, or perhaps later in the week. Yesterday on the program, we were chatting with Gavin McGarrigal with Unifor. Today, we are joined by Mike McDaniel with Coast Mountain Bus Company. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, good morning, Joe. What are you anticipating as far as uh, job action and what could happen next week? Uh, well, we are, as we stated before, as the job action continues, uh, uh, things will get a little bit worse each each day. Uh, a little bit hard to predict. Obviously, through this weekend, um, there's a, a low, kind of a lower schedule relative to service on the road. So that's not being affected through uh, yesterday, today, and, and tomorrow, or we're anticipating that anyways. Uh, come Tuesday, um, it may be similar to the latter part of the end of this last work week. Uh, we did have uh, about 25 uh, routes affected uh, on Friday, um, and we would anticipate something similar, uh, although very difficult to predict, uh, uh, starting uh, Tuesday. And when you say routes affected, is that delays, or what What exactly is the impact? Yeah, there could be various impacts on on those routes. For example, on Friday we had uh, a number of different trips uh, within each of those uh, those 25 routes that were either cancelled um, or were uh, partly uh, delivered. Uh, and again, uh, just with missing some of the vehicles uh, at the beginning of the morning rush, uh, it's difficult to predict where those are going to come and what effect they have. But as as they come, we uh, we obviously try to communicate out to the public as soon as we can through our transit alerts, uh, letting them know what's what's happening. But obviously, we don't want this to continue. We don't want any service disruptions to uh, to happen on any day. Uh, that's why we've been so uh, vocal about uh, asking the the union to come back to the table. We formally asked them this this past uh, Wednesday. Um, we've yet to receive a, a positive um, answer from them to come back, but we're hopeful that hopefully they well they will soon. Right. And you mentioned as well, there were at the beginning of this uh, 150 spare buses. Are those buses now all in use? Uh, well, it's difficult. Um, it fluctuates at each depot and, and each depot has different challenges. There's six different depots across the region. Um, mostly what we see happening uh, over, I guess, Thursday, Friday of this this last week is that there's more buses being flagged for minor uh, maintenance issues at the beginning, either at the end of the shift or at the beginning of the shift, and those are just taking a little while to work through in the morning. 
um, obviously impacted by some of the the overtime ban on the maintenance uh, side. Uh, and so as the as the morning progresses, we'll we'll go through uh, that batch of buses, and some will stay in for longer maintenance. Some will go uh, or quick fixes, and they'll go back out on the road right away. Uh, all right. And you mentioned as well uh, the formally asking the union to come back to the table. The union has said there's no point unless there's some movement in the company's position. Uh, from what I understand, there is something new when it comes to working conditions. So are you confident that the company has enough of uh, or enough to take to the table that it would be considered perhaps something new that the discuss- discussions could restart? Oh, I mean, we absolutely have uh, new things to talk about. We wouldn't have asked the, the uh, union to come back if we did not. We were very upfront. We wanted to talk about working conditions uh, first. Uh, it is one of the number one priorities we have heard them talk about. We've heard our staff uh, tell us as well. Um, and so we wanted to sit down and talk through that with them. Uh, it is a conversation that we need to have because uh, it is a complex issue. But we absolutely have new things to put on the table. That's what we told them on Wednesday. Um, they have yet to agree to come back. Uh, uh, the, the best way to get a deal, the only way to get a deal, is actually being at the bargaining table discussing this, and that's what everybody has told us we should do. Uh, everybody from from commuters to staff to everybody, and uh, that's why we put the formal offer out. Uh, we want to get back. We do have new uh, proposals to put in front of the union. Uh, they have yet to agree to that. All right. And I know uh, as your role as president, uh, you're relatively new to the role of president of Coast Mountain Bus Company. Why is it, do you think, we're in this position now when for the past 18 years it's been relatively smooth? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Jill. Um, you know, I think when we look back at uh, some of the other uh, collective agreement packages that, that we've, uh, we've negotiated with Unifor, um, what I think is interesting is that this package we have on the table right now is actually um, the, the, it's the highest, it's the richest agreement that we've done since the Olympics. Uh, and we're not even finished bargaining yet. So um, I'm a little bit at, at a loss uh, why the situation is coming up at this point. Um, what we have on the table right now uh, is, is quite fair and reasonable. It is greater than what the rest of the public sector is settling for in, in British Columbia today. Um, so I'm not exactly sure. I think that's a better, maybe a better question for, uh, for the union, but we've been very upfront, very transparent about what we want to offer our employees. We very much support our staff, especially on the front line. And, uh, that is why we are, uh, it's why, it's why our first offer, uh, what sits on the, on the table right now is our third offer. Uh, but our first offer, uh, was already in excess of what the rest of the public sector is getting in terms of wages. Uh, we have moved on that a little bit across the, the last two uh, offers that we put on the table, but we actually were very upfront. We support our staff. We want to move them faster than the rest of the public sector. That's why our deal reflects that. Uh, why exactly we're in the situation uh, we are with with the union's position, I'm. I think that's a better question for them. Right. But, but I mean, we don't get to a, a situation like this where what we're hearing from the union is, and what we know, that there, there are, if we're comparing it to 2001, uh, the system is much busier, the ridership is up, it's been voted a great system, a lot of people use it. But you don't get to a scenario where drivers don't get bathroom breaks and where these working conditions suddenly have become to the point where we're seeing job action. Did anything surprise you that, that we were suddenly, we're suddenly in this position of job action after not having any for such a long time? 
Well, I mean, as you said, I haven't been here for a long time, but when I did start here and I was talking to the staff uh, out at the depots, um, you know, one of the number one things they were talking about was recovery time. Um, and we started doing things uh, almost immediately. We, we did some changes at the Sur- Surrey Transit Centre uh, for the last April sheet, which did actually help quite a bit. Um, one of those things that we did was to was to limit the amount of, of routes that were interlined. Those are routes that a bus will serve more than one route uh, because the routes ended up being too long and it put too much risk into that schedule. Um, we did that. It actually improved things quite a bit. Uh, it include, uh, improved our on-time performance for our commuters and it improved the amount of recovery time for our for our staff. Um, we've been working on that leading up to uh, collective bargaining as well. We will continue to work on it after collective bargaining is done. Um, but the system is busier. I mean, I think if, if you were to put, uh, you know, put a point on that, that is uh, what the difference is over the last number of years, is over the last three years, demand on the system is uh, very, very high. Uh, and it is putting a lot of pressure on that. That's why we have put the proposals uh, on the table that we have. We have two proposals right now to increase uh, recovery time. Uh, and we want to sit down uh, with the union and go, f- go through more detail around those working conditions, specifically around the, the minimum guarantees and, and any pay after those if they don't receive them. But we can't, we can't talk about those until we have tabled them to, to the union. Um, we can't table them to the union until they get back to the table. So um, we're in a, a waiting game to, to, to see when they can come back so we can sit down and talk and eventually get to uh, a, 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 an agreement. Right. And, and there has been a lot of talk about the recovery time. And, and I think it's no secret that people know that the proposal that the company has put forward ups the number of minutes from about 45 to 60. Uh, but the union is saying that you can say as many minutes as you want. We still don't actually have the time to take those breaks. Uh, so if you are confident on the company's side that under this new proposal, there will be the time and members will get those breaks, why not offer a penalty or offer compensation if they're missed? Well, that, that is exactly the point, Jill. That is that, that you've said it very well, and that's why we want to get back to the table to discuss that. I, I can't get into the detail. The protocols um, limit me from, from discussing what we want to discuss with them in detail, but uh, it's fair to say that we, we are ready to address those. We've been very clear with them that we want to address exactly what you've brought up, uh, but we, we can't do that if, if they don't come back uh, to the table and, and talk to us about it. But we are prepared to put new language uh, relative to those points. Um, I I know you can't get into the details of that. So if this does go the route of escalation, which all all of the hints are at bus driver overtime coming in next week, if talks don't get back on track or if if nothing else changes, what is the contingency plan from the company if we're hearing that that will immediately reduce service by about 10 to 15%? Yeah, I mean, it is why we are pushing so hard to try to talk to the union because obviously, you know, they they haven't told us uh, specifically, but I know they've been public that the, you know the next um, the next escalation may be an, an uh, operator operator overtime ban that would cause significant disruptions in the system, um, quite significant, and we're trying to limit any service disruptions, the ones from today or potentially, uh, you know, tomorrow if uh, whenever they put in a, an extra a ban. That's why we've, you know, we've asked them, you know, let's use a third-party mediator through the Labor Relations Board. We've asked them that multiple times. Uh, they've declined. We've asked them. They, they said they needed a signal from the employer um, uh, to come back to the table. Uh, we actually used that 
as a formal invitation from our chief negotiator to theirs uh, on Wednesday. Uh, we want to get back um, so we can resolve this issue so that we don't have to have the disruptions that we're seeing uh, at the latter part of this, this last week uh, or any escalations because uh, it will have a very significant impact on the commuting public and we are doing everything we can to prevent that from happening because it will be um, it will be very disruptive, and, and we take great pride in, in putting the service on the road. Our, all of our staff do, all right. uh, and we don't want we don't want that to uh, occur. So, uh, the message has been very clear: we need to get back to the table. We're prepared to continue to talk about uh, improving the offer. Um, and uh, that's that's as clear as we can be about it. All right. We are right out of time. Michael McDaniel, thank you so much. That is Mike McDaniel, the president of Coast Mountain Bus Company. As we all know, tomorrow is Remembrance Day. And we were talking about it earlier on in the program. Um, people saying that they are going to a ceremony, that they will be having some personal reflection at home. Different ways that people mark Remembrance Day and make sure to take some moments to do exactly that, to remember. Well, my next guest have written a very interesting piece about the importance of personal memory on Remembrance Day and memory uh, in general. And joining me on the line to talk more about this and to uh, go over some of the writings is uh, Philippe Tortel and Margot Young. Philippe is a professor and uh, head in the Department of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences at UBC. And Margot Young is a professor of law at UBC. Thanks to both of you so much for being here. Pleasure. Uh, I'm not sure who wants to start, uh, but uh, whoever wants to start, maybe just talk a bit about the piece because it's it's a really interesting piece about memories, personal memory and reflection, what we can learn, how we can grow from that. Okay, well, Philippe, why don't you lead off, and then and then I'll follow with a, a few more comments. Sure. This uh, the, the piece really follows on a book that Margot and I edited with our colleague Mark Turin last year, which was the 100th anniversary, actually, of, uh, of the end of the First World War and Remembrance Day. And to mark that anniversary last year, we had put together a book that drew uh, a number of different people from around the world into some reflections and discussions about memory, not just uh, the way it's often traditionally remembered on Remembrance Day, but broader aspects about mem- memory in society, for individuals, for communities, and, and also actually for the Earth itself as written in glaciers and ice cores and all that kind of stuff. So it really got us thinking really deeply about what memory means, how it's, how it's recorded, how it changes over time, and how, it, how its significance uh, evolves. So re- really the piece was just kind of reflecting on that broader book, and in fact in, in the, the article you're talking about. There are lots of links to this book, which is available for free, actually, for download for anyone. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very interesting. And Margot, if you want to pick it up there. Sure, I'll jump in. And so really what we wanted to do was capture some of the really elegant messages of this collection that we put together in our short essay. And the collection touches across a range of disciplines, and it talks about how memory matters in really intriguing ways you wouldn't have thought that it did across the disciplines. So we have, for example, someone talking about how we encode memory in our DNA, the kind of epigenetics of memory. Somebody else talks about the importance of forgetting. So we focus so a lot on remembering and what we remember, but also sometimes it's really important to forget to carry on with your life. And sometimes um, the, the forgetting actually enables 
a more positive future. Other uh, contributors to the book are scientists. And so they talk about how memory is encoded in the physical earth and the messages that come to us from deep outer space and also at the the um, cellular level uh, in terms of one cell uh, organisms, what we can tell about their evolution thousands of years ago. So it's, it's really... Um, the essay we wrote is really an, an entry point into exploring the 20-some-odd essays in the larger collection. And it's like a little treasure chest. And you go from essay to essay and see how memory matters or, in fact, doesn't matter or how we remember, what we remember, and where we remember across the range of human experience and the physical world. And does it look at or, or uh, the 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 idea of Remembrance Day? It, it's right in the title of the day, and how different uh, how it's reflected on so differently. In that, a young person might be going to a ceremony, or might be obviously isn't remembering war because that person's never been in a war and never experienced it. Whereas a veteran is going to remember perhaps a particular incident or a particular time being in a battle or being involved in that. Well, you know, it's interesting. We don't talk directly about that in our essay, but I think it shows the really fertile nature of the concept of memory, that every conversation you have about it, including the one we're having with you right now, allows us to say other more nuanced ways in which memory matters and, and how it differs, differs across us, even as we engage in the collective um, a collective event or ceremony of remembrance, which is Remembrance Day. We do have essays in the book that talk about Remembrance Day in terms of how we remember. So we remember often through uh, memorial sites and buildings, and also what we remember and what we leave out remembering. So, for example, there's an essay that talks about the range of people from around the world, including particularly racialized populations and how our Remembrance Day service really has a kind of racial blindness to it in um, painting a rather incomplete picture of the people who suffered the effects of World War One. But, uh, Philippe, I'll turn it over to you t- to add to that comment. Yeah, I will say there's also a really interesting piece by our UBC colleague, George Beliveau, who's a professor of theater education, and he has worked extensively with war veterans who've been <clears throat> deeply traumatized by the things that they've seen. And through theater and through retelling of experience, he's gotten them past some very, very difficult moments. And he, in his own life, experienced trauma when his brother was killed in a in a climbing accident and so he weaves this narrative about the use of theater and the use of these remembered experiences that are acted on the stage as as a means of of healing and a means of recovering so there is some aspect of the of that remembrance in terms of having witnessed the horrors of war and and finding ways to move beyond that I would imagine, too, it also looks at remembrance in that you may not even realize you have a memory, but it's triggered by something, and then you are you get this, this memory flooding back that uh, is clear as day once it comes back, but you perhaps haven't thought of it for years and forgot it was even there. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, because there's one essay by uh, uh, some a psychologist and uh, some law professors who focus on this notion of memory in trial, memory of trauma that has been suppressed and ways in which it can be recovered, and, and all of the legal aspects around that in terms of uh, testimony at trial and so on. So it's quite a, quite an important issue and, and a complex issue as well. That's right, and it's part of the Me Too movement, which of course is about remembering what you had worked really hard to forget, and 
um, what the political import of these recovered memories are. I would add as well, there's a really lovely poem in, in the collection by a poet called Ellie Crowley Gardner that talks about how we can experience the same event together and yet each have very different memories of it. So she was in a theater and um, watching a movie and the person in front of her was shot. And she and her partner, who was also sitting there right beside her, had very different recollections of the event, although there were some things they both strongly shared in the same way. So it's the sort of not only the fleeting, but the um, very personal character of memory and what it is that we individually take away from events that isn't necessarily shared, even though we were at the same event with others. Which is, that made me think, too, of, of covering crime cases and talking to police officers and talking to witnesses. It's amazing how something could unfold, uh, similar to, to what you just mentioned, uh, a shooting or something like that. Something can unfold. The police could talk to three or four different people who witnessed it, and each would have a different description of what the suspect was wearing or a different description of how things unfolded. But they all witnessed the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's and right. In, in this essay that I mentioned, there was uh, some talk from the psych. psych- psychology professor who's worked actually with police officers to give them training about how to ask people questions in a way that isn't so leading. I think after trauma, people can be quite uh, susceptible to to certain, um, you know, memories and leading. And so I think there's been a, an evolution of the way that police are handling investigations and trying to get at those fragile memories. And the, and the essay, one of the same essay also talks on about the neurobiology of memory. So how do we store memories and the very different places in our brain that we store memories. So it's not just one site in the brain, there are different parts and that we reconstruct memories um, in terms of our neurobiology with different parts of our brain working together to do that and different sorts of memory have different encoding in the in, in the brain structures and systems and then they're reconstructed mm-hmm. across the brain differently. And so that's a fascinating science of memory that hooks up in some really interesting ways with the legal and social significance of memory. And the, the essay, the piece that uh, we're referencing, the essay uh, kind of a, a, that references the, the book, it starts with talking about our digital age. And I love that mm-hmm. phrase, the outsourcing of memory to our electronic devices. How do you both think that that has changed how we remember things? Philippe, I'll let you start off with that. Well, I mean, I guess in some ways it it frees up our our mind to to you know when we're no longer using a certain fraction of our brain power. Although I suspect we all have a lot to spare, to be honest. But when we're not sort of doing that and having to use our mind to keep track of these things, it, it perhaps maybe allows us to sort of explore other things more deeply, knowing that th- these basic functions of memory can be securely held off-site, so to speak. But at the same time it raises this real challenge of, of losing these things in, in a moment, you know. we Sure, we back things up, but at the same time, our memories are, in a way, much of what define our existence in the world and relations to other people. And to take that part of ourselves, which is such a core aspect of our being, and store it off-site, so to speak, just seems kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah, yes. And I would add um, just a couple of observations. Um, you know, one of the pieces talks about an individual who was in a motorcycle accident and lost his memory and how he was unable to conceive of the future. The future was just a blank space. And so that neurologically being able to remember is really important to also being able to project into the future. And so that has implications for how we 
curate our personal memories as we go forward in life. And there's another essay called uh, The Digital Shoebox that talks about um, the vastness of our storage capacity. So, you know, we think about think about all the photos we take on our phones and um, how all of us have, you know, just uh, files and files of photos, almost to the point now that the, the idea of retaining our photo memory is more importantly about what is it that we don't store, what is it we don't remember, because we have such capacity to remember so much that it's almost like remembering nothing because we lose this, right. the sort of the significance of the particular and, and our photo collections, I think online photo collections are a really good concrete example of that. And that's where the, the opening line of the essay takes its inspiration from this idea of we used to keep all our special things in a shoebox, but now we have this vast digital universe that will hold much more than a shoebox. All right. We're, we're almost out of time, but I just uh, wanted to go back to both of you. Uh, with the, And uh, Margo, you kind of touched on this, but how do we use memory then to make sure the future is, uh, whether we say it's better or more informed, more inclusive, how does memory play a role in that? And Philippe, I'll start with you. Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I think the first, the first thing is to understand that memory is selective and each individual holds a certain lens into the past, which is only a partial lens. And when we realize that and we open our consciousness to understanding that the world is inherently more complex, I think we go forward then which, with a more nuanced and richer understanding of, of what the future may be, that it is not constrained to our own individual experience, but it should be more reflective of a broader understanding of the way our, our civilizations have evolved. And I want to pick up on that notion, actually, and refer to an essay that uh, is in the collection by Wade Davis. And Wade is an environmentalist anthropologist, and he writes about how the environmental crisis we're currently in lacks a sort of urgency for us because we've forgotten what the environment was like before the degradation started. So in our essay, we talk, you know, about flocks of carrier pigeons that darkened the sky and the river of buffalo that ran through the prairies and and the plentitude of fish that slowed down the passage of boats in the ocean. And we've forgotten that that's what the earth was like before this human impact on it began to really be felt. And so there's a way that we numb ourselves to the current environmental crisis by failing to remember what earth was like before that crisis. So this, I think, is a good example in a time of growing recognition of the challenges we face as a, as a, as a civilization, but nationally, politically, in terms of the climate crisis, to remember what the earth used to be like, because that gives us some indication of the future we want to point towards and the future we want to steer away from. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, fascinating topic and uh, great that that's available for people as well. Thank you both so much for being with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. A pleasure. Very much. Thank you for having us.